Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider, where you can get restaurant-quality meals, grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb, outdoor bread pork, and a selection of paleo and low-carb products, delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Here we go. And we are recording. And I'm lucky enough to have with me today Peter Dobromilski, who is a veterinary, veterinary anaesthetist and nutrition blogger. Welcome. Nice to be here. Thanks very much, Ali. Thanks for coming on. Um, so in my view, you're something of a, a citizen scientist legend, uh, having been cited here, there and everywhere by some of the people I'd consider real pioneers in nutrition, including people like Dr. Mike Eads, whose book Protein Power is a New York Times bestseller. Um, and your blog, which is called Hyperlipid, is unapologetically dense with science but I think it started rather simply I believe you wanted to help out a friend who had an issue um is that right and what happened there well it it was a little bit before then and I'd gone to an anesthesia meeting in Utrecht on cannabis of all things and cannabis in the intensive care unit and I met a friend there who had gone on to Atkins induction and dropped from 18 stone to 12 stone in six months. Wow. I'd had no interest in metabolism other than trying to manage my diabetic patients. Um, and he said, you should get the book, you should read it. And on the way home from Utrecht, I bought a copy at the airport and had a read. And it kind of split into two parts. Uh, one was selling multivitamins, which I didn't really buy terribly much. Mm-hmm. And the other was heavily referenced and um, uh, was basically about metabolism. Now, this is back in 2002, and there wasn't the stuff published in those days that we've, we've got now. But I just discovered PubMed. Um, all of my anesthesia tickets I got by going to the library, getting an up-to-date review, um, and following stuff back by going journal to journal on foot from, from shelf to shelf and photocopying stuff. And PubMed, to me, became accessible uh, turn of the century, around about 2000. And <clears throat> this were in 2002. So I could go and check whether what Atkins said in his book held water. And kind of it was good in most parts. It was good enough to convince me to give it a go just out of interest. I wasn't overweight. I had no weight to lose at all. Um, I had a little little tummy. Um, I was 40 odd at the time, um, but I didn't consider myself overweight. And I was extremely active, um, uh, 
sporting basis on it. I used to kayak surf off the beach. We lived just off the beach at the time. And um, uh, if I had a couple of hours spare, that was where I would go if there were any waves. Um, and once you started picking at the references, you discovered on PubMed that little line that said related links or related subjects. Uh, and I just click on that and go. And from there onwards, it just exploded outwards. Um, I went on to Atkins Induction. Um, my uh, wife was not very enthusiastic about it, um, but she had major, major, major gut problems um, uh, and um, um, IBS type things. Uh, and we basically uh, put her on to Atkins induction and within two weeks she was off of um, the antacids and the, um, the syndrome where regurgitated coffee that she drunk at 11 in the morning would come down her nose at 11 at night um, disappeared completely as well. Um, and that was off the omeprazole. Um, and, uh, and it, it was hard. It was not easy. Um, you walk around Sainsbury's and uh, they would be pumping out that fresh bread smell. I'm sure they buy it in cartons. <laughs> Through the, uh, um, uh, through the air conditioning um, and uh, that, that was the first six weeks was not easy but we've both been low carb since then to varying degrees um, uh, I, I personally well we both went through a little bit of safe starches and found that was not helpful mm -hmm. um, uh, and went back to, uh, to basically near ketogenic eating I, I, I'm the extremist um, I don't really do carb creep. My wife is less um, less extreme than me in, in most things, um, and uh, that that's where we began from. Uh, but the changes were so dramatic, um, and the ability to exercise on a sustained basis was so worth having um, that uh, uh, I've stuck with it, and I've not I've not changed since. Obviously. Um, I've been talking on the blog recently that things have, have modified a little bit, but none of it is a matter of going back and saying, well, I made a mistake. I'm going to kill myself by eating low carb. I'm going to short my life or whatever. As far as I can tell, the, the evidence base is fairly good, bearing in mind that I'm probably the most biased pro-low carb person you'll meet, excepting people who may have a financial stake in it. And I have no financial stake in anything. Okay, that, that's how it began. <laughs> That's, yeah, it's a great story. And, and there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in there. Um, I want to talk about Atkins a bit because he's an interesting figure. And, um, but I like talking about bias too. I think it's a really fascinating subject. I think yeah. once, um, once it's just, what I've noticed is that amongst low-carb people, there's a, there's a real over-representation of uh, professional scientists, engineers, that kind of thing and yeah yes yeah. and um you know i've got a physics and engineering background and you know when evidence was presented to me originally by my professor ken strain who's appeared on the podcast and he, he you know he he was trying to be as hands-off as possible um he said check these things out see what you think so various sources, including your blog. And I feel like once you read and understand these kinds of sources, it's actually very difficult to conclude otherwise that low carb is safe and effective um, because there's, there's, there really is a lot of good evidence for it. Um, 
And in terms of uh, bias, I think, yes, of course, acknowledging that once you've come to some conclusion about something, you have this um, confirmation bias. You know, you're, you're in this sort of um, wider, th- wider scheme of things, you're on team low carb. But in the personal side of things, you are team you and you've decided low carb is a good thing. And so that means you're going to stick to that because you don't want to look like an idiot by having been wrong. And well, yeah, and nice. I, I, I think that's the, the, the main source of bias, you know? So whether someone's taking money or not, it feels to me like the main source of bias is your past decisions. Yes, yes. I, I completely agree with that. I completely agree. And on the engineering side as well, that was, that, that's an, an interesting background. Uh, I come from anesthesia. And if you make the wrong decision, when you're anaesthetizing a couple of million quids worth of racehorse, mm. and it dies, it will die within, if you're really unlucky, 30 seconds of you making the wrong decision. Wow. You don't have the ability to sit back and say, well, we screw up on dietary advice and it's going to take 30 years to find out. You, you, you have a, a, a need to make sure you're right as, as well as you can. Uh, theoretically before you actually do something so you know if if my supervisor uh, when I was doing my anesthesia diploma uh, would give me a stack of papers four inches thick and say go read all those and we're guessing horse tomorrow (laughs) 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 thanks Polly Um, but it it made you very very analytical um, and it made you learn how to read a paper so you could look at a paper and go well okay they did this, this, and this, but I wouldn't do that, that, and that. So what's going to be different about what's going to come out at the end of the year? Uh, and uh, that's the, the way I ended up looking at nutrition papers. Um, but obviously on a, nutri- a nutritional basis, you've got decades to before a fudge factor before you turn out to be right or wrong. Okay, yeah. That's, but, but yes, coming back to bias, that's, you know, once you've nailed your colours to the mast, that's it, you've nailed your colours to the mast, you're going to look really stupid. It's like the vegans that stop being vegan, they get crucified by the, uh, by the true believers. Um, hopefully, yeah. I don't, but, but it's still, it's there. It's there as a bias, you're quite right. Yeah, for sure. And I think it happens in any group. You know, I think vegans seem to be particularly uh, harsh to former members because it's a moral crusade as much as anything. Yeah. I think low carbing can be similar. Um, I don't, I think low carbers, t- sort of vehement low carbers tend to think that they're protecting human beings and uh, vegans tend to think they're protecting human beings and any sentient beings besides. So, so, so maybe a greater burden, maybe a greater, um, they feel like it's a greater cause somehow. But I have seen, you know, people say uh, if, if, if folk give up um, low carb, that maybe, you know, they didn't do it right. I think you see the same things on, on, on yeah. either side. Yeah. Now, I, I have to say that, that, that my wife is an extremely great reminder to me that, that, that low carb is not a panacea for everything. <laughs> it really isn't. I, I've come to low carb basically with very few medical problems. Um, and they've been relatively low grade and they've improved fairly significantly on low carb but I've not I'm not in the situation where I have to low carb I I could 
go and do other things and, and be basically healthy. Um, but just occasionally, there are things that, that, that the, the, the problems then with not going low carb come back to, as you say, in, in terms of uh, what would you, you you've, you've nailed your colors to the mast and suddenly you think, oh shit, I'm wrong. Anyway, by the way, but no, the, um, <laughs> so, uh, that, that's, the biases are there. I also, the other thing about the vegans was the moral crusade. Um, I, the first university society I joined um, when I got to the Royal Vatican College uh, was uh, U4, uh, the University's Federation for Animal Welfare. And um, I've always felt that um, you should be looking after, if you're going to eat an animal, uh, it, a, it should have a good life, and B, it should have a good death. It's going to die. Whatever happens, we're all going to die. Um, and if uh, a cow has a pasture-fed life, or even, I mean, I worked as a vet in, uh, for a while in mixed practice in rural Norfolk. Um, we had barley beef. Um, we had cattle in uh, on indoor yards in the, um, in the winter. Uh, they were out on the acre marshes in the summer um, and I the units I worked at which were relatively low tech units um, I had no embarrassment about being the vet serving these cattle um, and to me what matters is probably the half an hour hour between leaving home and getting the bolt in the head it's going to die if it can die cleanly with minimum upset, minimum stress. In fact, there was a while in the UK where we had mobile slaughterhouses where they would drive a truck around to the farm, uh, stun the bullock and, and um, butcher on the farm. That to me looked, was, was ideal. I'm not sure whether it's happening anymore. I think not. The rules and regs for meat inspection are so tight in the UK, uh, rightly so. Um, that uh, I think that's all gone and all of the small slaughterhouses have gone out of business. So it tends to be the bigger ones that survive. So that, that, that to me is not a positive thing on animal welfare, but, uh, but that I think on a non-vegan animal welfare basis is the drive is, uh, uh, you know, that, that the cattle should live a cattle appropriate life and they should die as atraumatically as possible. And um, then I'm willing to eat them. <laughs> quite happily um, but they they need a decent life and it, the, the, the same applies there. I think the, the biggest problem are the, uh, the uh, again my kids eat chicken quite a lot and they like chicken um, on a welfare basis uh, and to a huge extent it's a disaster area um, and there are lots of things you can talk about chickens are <laughs> things like that we keep our own chickens we don't eat them because by the time they pass away they're uh, old and stringy um, but I'm quite happy to keep chickens and eat the eggs from them without any moral issues. Um, they're all mostly expats. Um, we don't buy pedigree chickens. They've had a horrendous life. They get the last couple of years um, pecking around in the dirt. That's fine by me. Um, and uh, when they do go, if they're ill, a lot of them do sudden deaths and chickens do that if they're old. Um, but if they're going to have to be put to sleep, then it's a single injection or I bury them. We don't eat them. Um, that, but that's just because of the type of chickens I keep. But welfare-wise, um, I feel somewhat uncomfortable uh, about the white meats, that's for sure. Mm. And I, 
have a good friend in animal welfare who says that uh, wild-caught fish, the uh, process of death is not pleasant. Um, uh, these factory farmed fish that you that you get. So that's the other slight issue I have is um, we do eat salmon still, um, wild-caught salmon, um, but it the, the 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 kind of ethical background to it I think is slightly dubious. I'd always felt basically, well, we've all got to die. The salmon's got to die at some stage. Um, the process between being caught and being being dead it's not that long, but I'm the process isn't always good. Oh really? I've not heard that. Yeah, um, that's from one of the people who the, the, the government put out a consultation request for animal welfare on slaughter, uh, and she was heavily involved in that. Um, so that's interesting. I know that the I didn't go into the great details, but but it's it, it's it's a matter of how long you spend in in before you're eviscerated. So she she was very dubious about about wild caught fish, well about fish basically on a welfare basis. Um, I've always been worried about chicken and so that leaves you basically with the, the ruminants and we get back to the, the ruminati um, and, uh, and, and ruminants have got a huge amount going for them. So <laughs> there. Yeah I would agree. <laughs> you know the, the, the amount of land in the UK which is naturally appropriate for ruminants is, is quite large it's about 65 percent of the yes. land is uh, is good for you know grazing and so we're kind of lucky here um you know you get a lot more pork in places where pork and chicken where there's where there's less grazing land and yeah. at that point when you when you, you you know you're raising monogastrics the uh welfare seems to go downhill a little bit yes. um, yeah. because there isn't that opportunity to pasture them uh, and well, the, the 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 reason I like sheep and lamb particularly because if you stick them in a barn, they die. <laughs> they mm. they're not adapted to living indoors. They've got to be outdoors uh, on a, a health and welfare, more well, health basis. Uh, so really, that you can't do intensive sheep farming, or if you cannot, they don't do it around here. Uh, I think that they have huge trouble with being confined, um, particularly with respiratory disease. So they're out and about on the hill. Um, and we do have them um, cheap in East Anglia, but not like you have them up in Scotland. Yeah, it's brilliant up here. And I spent a bit of time in New Zealand, and of course they've got something like 10 sheep to every person they've got. Yeah. Um, I think it's brilliant. And uh, it's interesting. I'm sure, it, I'm sure somebody or some company would come along and do an intensive indoor um, sheep farm if they could, and welfare standards would, would be eroded because where there's a buck to be made, then it will be. Um, so well, it's really interesting. Yeah. And if yeah. I think if I had, if I had my way, I would probably uh, stick to ruminants all the time and, um, maybe even do a bit of hunting for venison and game, um, perfect place in Scotland. It's just a shame that all of the, or many of the, the estates are owned by, um, you know, members of parliament and Qatari businessmen and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, you can do it, uh, one, one shot kill if you can do it. Yes, exactly. Yes. As opposed to euthanasia, there's a food animal is going to get. Uh, I'm all in favour of the absolute minimum suffering for them. Yeah. yeah, I agree completely. And I, and I think doing that kind of calculus is hard um, because you you know 
bringing in the the suffering of people who might not have the advantage of eating healthy food um, if you're not raising these animals for their food can be brought into the the equation and at that point it becomes kind of murky and hard to add up but I guess it's easy to see when an animal is uh, suffering in a prolonged way and I, I I don't know if you've seen the TED talk by or the film about Temple Grandin. No, I've not seen that one yet. Um, where she, um, she's, I think she's on the autistic spectrum and she's got a, a way of yeah. seeing things. And so she kind of is able to empathize with the way animals see things. And she's designed and patented uh, slaughterhouse uh, layouts that keep the animals calm. Read her book. I, I know she has a book uh, that's on my um, to-read li list. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you can minimise the stress to the to the, the animal, that's where it comes from. Yeah. No, I do know who you mean now. Much more so. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, and she uh, in the states, isn't she? That's right. house in the states. Yeah. yeah. No, there is that TED talk. I'll go for that one. And yeah, you started talking about Atkins as well, and he was an interesting character. I spoke to Professor Tim Noakes a little bit about Atkins. Often um, he gets slagged off online for being larger when he died. And people rushed to his defense saying that he put on a lot of weight uh, due to a condition partly caused by his uh, hitting his head when he fell over. But of course they, they did find some, or did they, some... Um, atherosclerosis um, and his arteries furred up um, you know it's not clear exactly what his health condition was but what Tim Noakes pointed out was that um, Atkins didn't probably didn't stick to his own diet very well. Well his own diet recommended a progressive increase in carbohydrate there was Atkins induction which I think was it two weeks maybe it was four weeks, I think it was two weeks, and then you increased carbohydrate up to a level which you are comfortable with your weight at. Um, and that, there's, that, that's self-determined, there's no formula to it at all. Um, and there were a number of, to me, that caused the, 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 a, a number of problems to the, particularly the technical studies on a low carbohydrate diet basis because they will always start off comparing um, Atkins induction ad libitum food intake uh, with um, calorie-restricted low-fat diets. This was the standard way of doing it. And uh, in the vast majority of the studies, obviously the Atkins induction uh, would win hands down. But there was then always put in, the uh, protocol would include a progressive increase in carbohydrate intake to the level that you're comfortable with. And again, this is not rigorously controlled and at that point um, you start to lose the benefits of the low uh, you only ever get any benefit from low carbohydrate dieting if you don't eat the carbohydrate um, mm -hmm. as you start to increase it then you get more and more like a mixed diet or a mediterranean type diet um, and the appetite suppression that comes with the initial ketosis particularly if you're overweight um, uh, well that's gone and you're then not comparing a uh, genuinely low carb diet with, um, in ad lib terms, uh, with a calorie restricted low fat diet, you're getting more and more to just uh, low calorie diets rather than 
uh, the, the Atkins induction. So um, from the, there was a lot of controversy about the weight of Atkins when he died. Um, but again, uh, as an anaesthetist, you, you have some idea of how you run an intensive care unit. Um, and the comments that he gained a lot of weight through fluid therapy are absolutely correct. I mean, at the time that, that they were running critical care work in the, the turn of the century, um, you had a set of numbers that you used to keep a patient alive. They've got to have uh, this level of arterial blood pressure, this level of peripheral vascular resistance, this level of oxygenation, uh, and you would manipulate whatever you needed to manipulate to keep the numbers within physiological limits. Um, uh, uh, often the patient heavily sedated, ventilated, and your, your number has got to be kept correct. If that means volume loading, fluid loading, to the point where you develop massive peripheral edema and fluid retention, then that's what you do. Um, uh, and all of that, if your patient survives, all of that's going to go away. It will just, you back off on the fluid therapy uh, and it's all, it's all urinated out. So the actual number of the weight, I can quite easily believe, uh, was very, very markedly um, increased by the manipulations you have to do to maintain blood perfusion to the brain, which is what you're trying to maintain with a head injury. Uh, so I've got no problem with that. Um, uh, how well he stuck to his diet, I don't know. He was also reputed in his, in his own book, or he was also reputed to have a myocarditis. Um, and again, you then start asking, well, what's a myocarditis? And why is it there? And you're still um, 15, 20 years away, or nearly from the people taking the paleolithic approach, where you, if you had an inflammatory problem like that, you would be getting out all of the grains and anything that was affecting the intestinal permeability in an attempt to try and control the, the underlying uh, inflammatory process, whether it would be autoimmune or whether it would be non-specific autoinflammatory. I wouldn't like to say, but, but that, that there were a lot of things that Atkins would not have been um, in any way paleo um, and uh, from what I was reading the, in, in his book there was no specific exclusion of grains um, you could have crackers and things like that if they were low carb high fat that's fair enough but you know that's what he was doing at the time but there are a lot of things that have changed since then that might be done differently which may or may not make any difference in the outcome but he, he did have other medical problems he was also a complete pain in the ass, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> if you read um, Yudkin, you, you've read John Yudkin, yeah? Yeah. Uh, Yudkin put a comment in one of his, probably in Pure White and Deadly, actually. Um, one of his comments was that, that Atkins put back the cause of low-carb nutrition by decades because he was such an ordinary, aggressive, unpleasant person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, 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 you know. Atkins died just as I started low carbing. So I, and again, there weren't podcasts. You can, you know, there was nothing like there is today. So you couldn't actually verify anything like that at all. But, but, but Yubkin was really down on Atkins uh, in terms of his um, approach and abrasiveness. <laughs> they, I don't think the two particularly saw eye to eye. And uh, Yubkin was, uh, as far as you could tell from his writing, uh, a genuinely nice bloke. Um, and, uh, not particularly anti-food industry. He, he worked with them. He took money from them. Uh, uh, but he appeared to maintain a, a fairly reasonable ethical stance. Um, and uh, 
he was perfectly willing to work with the food industry if he thought he could take it towards the low carb approach that, that appeared to benefit his patients. Um, mm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I hadn't heard that about Atkins before. I had heard about Otto Warburg, who did so much work on the uh, you know the yeah. so-called Warburg effect about um, how uh, cancer cells um, metabolize. That's actually the the podcast that's just gone out, and uh, Thomas Seyfried is nice. talking about that. But um, yeah, that Otto Warburg was so unpleasant that he almost, even though he was he was one of the most brilliant scientists of his generation, and everybody acknowledged that. Nobody wanted to advance his cause or work with him because he was awful. (laughs) It happens, it happens, I'm sure. (laughs) You talk about Atkins to start, but there's a lot of stuff in your blog from um, the earlier days about the so-called optimum diet, which uh, maybe you could talk about that and how you you got into that. Yeah, well, I I did about six months on Atkins induction and got over the... um, the, the weakness and the muscle aches. And I kind of started looking at it, just pure logic. Um, and um, Jan Krasniewski, who died uh, earlier on this year, um, had this optimal diet. Um, and he basically said, uh, run on animal fat, eat enough protein to replace the protein that you're losing on a daily basis and eat enough carbohydrate to replace the carbohydrate that you're using up on a daily basis. And it was pure logic. Um, uh, if you ever, have you ever read any of his books? Never have. No, no. Uh, he's so, uh, um, or he was a complete wild card. He had the most bizarre ideas um, that whenever you got the chance to check one of them, he was usually right, which I found quite scary. But Um, There was not a lot of uh, research to back up his ideas. Um, They did a little bit in the group that he he ran um, as the years went by, but to to be that extreme and to be that anti-vegetable, he was completely anti-polyunsaturate and very pro-saturated fat. Um, uh, Having What he was saying fitted in with the papers and things I was reading that was a follow-on from Atkins and then just broadening out. Um, and it seemed, um, it just seemed logical. I, you, th- this was something that uh, I took to a large extent on faith, um, which you shouldn't do, but I couldn't see anything against it. Um, it appealed because he was such um, an off-the-wall maverick. <laughs> Again, you shouldn't really make the decision based on that sort of basis. Um, I did it for a while. It worked perfectly well, and I stuck with it for a long, long time. Uh, and obviously, as the years go by, I'm curious about what what works, what doesn't work, and I will tweak this or tweak that. Um, and uh, he was also very much a nose-to-tail person, um, so Offal was on the agenda uh, uh, twice a week. Um, and as you go by year after year, it, 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 I get lazy. Uh, and I'll I'll be running an optimal like diet, um, and I think we all do a certain amount of drift. Uh, my drift wasn't to increase carbohydrate intake. Uh, my drift, if anything, was to drop carbohydrate intake, which was not something he was keen on. Um, uh, 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 my drift was up with protein, um, and uh, again, getting sources of fat that don't have protein attached to them is actually quite hard. Um, so even if you're eating um, 
high fat sources, um, never, ignoring meat and things, but snacky type things um, like macadamia nuts, they all come with a protein load. Um, even very high percentage cocoa chocolate comes with a, a low grade protein load, but there is a, there, there is a protein load there. Um, and I think over the years, I probably did protein creep more than I did carb creep. Um, and it's interesting that from the metabolic point of view, uh, he was very pro-saturated fat, but not pro-ketones. Mm. Um, and yeah, quite. Um, uh, and you can see that there's a certain amount of logic to that, because if you have a tissue that can burn fat, then it's going to get the most energy out of um, a saturated fat, because you haven't got the double bonds that are, that are not producing FADH. But we'll come back to that hypothesis. My, my, my ideas on that later, if you like. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it was he was very much that metabolism should run on fat rather than ketones, and I could never really um, get anything convincing as to why it should be on that basis, apart from where you put your input into the um, the electron transport chain. Um, so that. Uh, um, when I finally decided I was going to make a change, uh, I didn't worry too much uh, about the fact that I was going to go properly into ketosis. Uh, but with the with the, the level of activity I've had over the years, I've always been on the edge of ketosis anyway. You'd be kind of you ever did a dipstick. I don't, I've not bothered ketone meters because it's not something I'm particularly interested in. Um, but uh, if you ever peed on a dipstick, there will be some ketones there. And if I did a long, 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 long bike ride, um, you know, four or five hours um then yeah you'd be off at the four plus stage um I've, again i've no huge faith in the in the keto sticks in terms of accuracy but they'll tell you which ballpark you're in and that that was all the, the level of interest that i had because i'm not trying to manage a neurological problem or anything like that so to, to me it's just curiosity more than anything else but no yanko said he had he had some interesting ideas he had very interesting ideas about temperament and nutrition as well um, which fits in perfectly well with how we look at the vegans and how they're not always the happiest of people. No, not, I mean, no, we have a number of friends that, that are vegans and, um, uh, and certainly many that are vegetarian and they're perfectly nice people. Um, and not always the healthiest, but, but, but there are certain character traits that you do wonder um, whether the question is, was right about um, how food, long-term nutrition affected behavior. Um, and there are little bits come through on that that, that are quite believable nowadays. Well, all the things about the, 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 the observational epidemiology about de depression in, in, um, in vegetarians kind of rings true. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously, you could, you could come at it with any epidemiology and say, well, maybe they're depressed because they're thinking about the plight of the animals so much, or maybe there's some other thing going on there. Yeah, or maybe the sort of person that's depressed is the sort of person that gravitates to vegetarianism. You can't sure. tell this to epidemiology. Um, but, but he had ideas along those lines, and I found them interesting, and I found them potentially plausible. Um, but you can never get any hard data to really back them up. Yeah, I mean, I love all that stuff too. When I first started dabbling with, with this, I noticed huge changes in my mental bearing. And it was, you know, anything from anxiety to... Uh, depression to a, a, a diagnosed ADHD that more or less vanished very quickly, if not overnight, when I started, I suppose, running on my, running my brain on ketones rather than um, cheap carbs. And the mood thing was huge. 
And I started thinking, how much of an individual, any individual's mood swing um, is, is food or, you know, caffeine or any of the other things that we take in, nicotine, um, rather than a true response to what's going on around them. Uh, you know, you, they talk about zero carb zen, and I definitely feel that. And I mean, obviously, you've had Tucker on recently, um, and um, uh, he's from slightly different slant. He's on a uh, but an equally anti omega six polyunsaturated fatty acid basis. And I have to say that I kind of look back and think, well, the cardiologist really, really screwed everybody over in the 1970s. And now we have the millennials coming through who have been conceived and reared on polyunsaturated fatty acids. And how much of the um, depression problems that, with, that are so prevalent everywhere, the inability to cope with the stress that comes through, the ability to be, as it were, triggered? Yeah. And how much of this mental instability might be diet related and that yeah, absolutely because that crosses my mind on a repetitive basis yeah, yeah there's yeah. A, a couple of studies that uh emily deans the uh, psychiatrist who's on twitter um who did a uh, an article for psychology today a while ago a few years ago now and talks about the um young offenders institute in uh, in the netherlands yeah. that prescribed, it did a double-blind placebo-controlled um, test on uh, high omega-3 uh, fish oil. Yeah, yes. yeah. And they found that the, the amount of uh, violent, uh, violence committed by those who were on the omega-3 versus placebo dropped away precipitously. So there was, there's definitely something in it. Uh, yeah, and I wondered that too, you know, with the, the tissue levels of uh, linoleic acid having gone up um, yeah. markedly over the last 50 years or so, exactly what effect is that having? It, there seems to be some very deep correlations with some disturbing behavior like homicide, for example. Well, that was in the original, uh, was it the Mr. Fit study? where the, Was it, yeah. I forget which, I might have been that one, but the, basically the... Um, that there was a minor decrease in cardiac deaths, but it was replaced by suicide and violence. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, um, but it was one of those very, very early, early lipid lowering studies that, uh, and it, it was violence and depression. People would throw a fist at someone in a bar in downtown Texas. Well, that's not a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think behavior. Um, I think we got there, we got here from Krasinski, didn't we? He was talking about character types and behavior. Um, and I, I can see that you, you can look at the biochemistry and the brain biochemistry and see that it, these are quite plausible things that, that, that might have some grounding in, in reality. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, another interesting thing that, that comes up when people talk about the optimal diet is uh, the guy who wrote it was Polish, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, some people criticize it for, um, the, there's some whispers and maybe not good enough evidence, but that there's potentially more uh, gastric cancers yeah. um, in Poland or in particular people who follow that kind of high yeah. animal fat diet in Poland. There certainly is, because um, I looked at the, um, the epidemiology of that, and there is an increased risk of um, certain gastrointestinal cancers in, in Poland, full stop. Yeah. Um, 
when the optimal diet people did, they've got one published paper where they documented a lot of the metabolic parameters. And some of the people on the optimal diet, I think they were, again, this is from memory from a long time ago, but they were running quite high insulin levels. Um, and I think if you have a very, very high saturated fat diet and enough carbohydrate to stimulate insulin secretion, the insulin won't be mopped up by the liver. There will be very little first pass insulin metabolism in the liver. So the insulin ends up in the systemic circulation. And um, uh, just again, if you go back to metabolic syndrome as a driver of cancer formation, uh, then insulin is going to be one of your key signaling molecules to determine whether a cell divides or not, and whether it should grow. Um, and the correlation between insulin elevated usually through insulin resistance and cancer formation um, seems quite convincing to me. So um, uh, whatever diet you're running on, I think your, your best surrogate for low insulin is going to be weight loss. I mean, people aren't going to measure their insulin levels on a four times a day basis. Um, and one of the things that when, when I went carnivore six months ago, uh, one of the things that convinced me I might have done the right thing was I spontaneously lost a few kilos. I wasn't carrying that many kilos, but they just went. Um, and I'm now probably a little bit too skinny, but there you go. <laughs> can mm. look at that. But the, I, I look at body weight as a surrogate for 24-hour 24 24 hour average insulin levels. That, that to me seems quite convincing. Mm. Yeah, that seems fair. There's there's some really interesting stuff coming out. I don't know if you follow Jim Johnson, uh, the prof professor in Toronto, I think. They get, they, uh, I keep on his papers and they get tweeted by um, uh, Rafi and, um, uh, and um, George Harrison, George mm. Anderson, on mm. a regular basis. So I, I, I don't follow him on Twitter. I don't hardly follow anybody on Twitter. <laughs> but... Uh, um, uh, but no, his work is very interesting. I spent a lot of time this last six months going through his uh, um, rodent insulin gene knockout papers. And again, they're quite interesting on a long-term basis, not, not only the longevity, uh, but in terms of insulin-induced insulin resistance. There are a lot of, because basically he's, he's backing off insulin exposure um, and they stay insulin sensitive. Um, uh, but again, you have to get in very careful with semantics and whether insulin sensitivity is good, bad, or indifferent. So that, yeah. that's, um, that, that, um, that, that, that's a, ultimately, he's, he's looking at a very interesting set of models. Uh, and I have a huge amount of time for him. I think he's doing very, very good work. Um, uh, but I, I always, insulin, insulin sensitivity is a very slippery term. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, uh, and uh, how good or how bad it it actually is. And gene sensitivity is fine if you don't use it, because <laughs> if you use it, you're going to get fat. Um, so um, yeah, that's a, but yeah, you're into semantics there. But Jim Johnson's work, I, I have enjoyed over this last uh, this last six months. I, did, I I I heard little bits from him before that, but I'd never actually gone back and gone through his papers in in any great detail. But some of the ones with the, the insulin gene knockouts have turned out to be very, very interesting indeed, and very confirmation biasy as well. <laughs> sure, I mean he's been he's been talking recent he's been writing recently about um, 
the insulin environment and pancreatic cancer in mice. I was talking to a researcher the other day who's in Glasgow um, about pancreatic cancer. He's a professor looking at that. And um, one of the things that's so hard about pancreatic cancer seems to be that the immune system um, almost works on behalf of the cancer, allowing the, you know, keeping the immune system away from attacking the cancer. So that it's, it's, I don't know if it's unique to pancreatic cancers, but certainly it does this. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why pancreatic cancer is so often fatal is um, that the body kind of turns against itself. But um, he was interested to hear about the insulin thing. I think there's not a lot of joined up thinking in um, certain branches of science just because everyone has their own niche and nobody's got the time to read everything. Yes. Yeah, yeah, this is true. Um, and I, I, find that, that I find that if I get interested in a given subject, I will follow it and follow it and follow it. But there are obviously there are an infinite supply of subjects and you can't follow all of them. Uh, and I follow a, a given thought thread. Uh, and when you get things, because that, 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 you know, we, we've all known for decades that insulin and type 2 diabetes and cancer are associated. Um, and one of the, the, one of the few drugs that seems to make a difference um, on an epidemiological basis is metformin. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, metformin simply blunts insulin signaling. That's its core function. Um, uh, which would go a long way to, to why diabetics who continue to have hyperglycemia under the current management um, are significantly protected against cancer and cancer growth by metformin. Um, so that, that puts insulin more at the centre than hyperglycemia. And to, to see the paper come out from uh, Jim Johnson's group with the pancreatic cancer and insulin, that's... Um, you can see how he's gotten there because he's been looking at insulin and longevity and at insulin and diseases of old age um, for quite a long time now. So yeah, that that's, was a nice paper, that's for sure. When I first came to Hyperlip, the Hyperlipid blog, um, it was when you were heavily into high fat dairy as a main fuel source. You know, it's, it's a very clean way in a sense of getting lots of fat yeah. without the protein load. And I was just starting low carb way of eating and dabbled with paleo um, you know, so many of my issues and my extra weight just melted away on low carb. And it, it wasn't until further down the line that um, I thought I'd try to eliminate dairy to see what happened. Um, because I kept, you know, finding new layers of good health, eliminating one thing or another. And, you know, and I noticed several improvements, including my skin looking better. And kind of amazingly, I thought the last, almost the last thing that I had wrong with me, which was that I'd lost part of my sense of smell a few years before and uh, it wasn't a very clean experiment I, I, I stopped eating dairy very strictly and nightshade vegetables very strictly for a number of weeks and my sense of smell came back yeah. um and you know how has your eating changed in the last few years of it since you were you know doing a lot of uh, fermented dairy and uh, that sort of thing um i i had slight suspicions about dairy long long time ago um, uh, on the basis that um, this came down to the signal for ending lactation mm. yeah. so when a cow or a human is lactating and there's a sudden cessation 
of um, the calf's taken away or baby's weaned or whatever, um, there is a signal for stopping the production of milk. And that signal is triggered by casein. And the casein opens the tight junctions between the epithelial cells which line the mammary gland and allow milk proteins to be seen by the immune system, which then causes an inflammatory action which shuts down the milk production. Hmm. So that's how casein controls lactation. So when the milk backs up, essentially it leaks back into the body and tells the body to stop making it. But, but so intrinsic to how casein controls lactation is its ability to open tight junctions. Okay, these are these these are these, um, these are these gaps between cells that uh, allow um, passage uh, from one part of the body to another. Yeah, classically from the intestine into the into the uh, into the submucosa, uh, in, in, into the lining of the intestine, basically. Yeah, and then onto the bloodstream, I guess. Yeah, and I, I came at this obviously from uh, gluten because we'd had again we, gluten elimination very very early on. Uh, seemed to produce a, it, it was intrinsic to the changes in the diet that we made um, uh, as part of health improvement. And I could see basically that, that yes, uh, gluten opens the tight, tight junctions. Casein does the same. And I wondered how much of a problem that might be. And the answer is I don't know. Mm. Um, but the presumption is that if your casein is being broken down rapidly, because obviously it's a normal substance for for babies to consume and for calves to consume and you could say we're in the wrong species if we're consuming dairy but that doesn't alter the fact that the calf doesn't get inflammatory bowel disease from drinking cow milk and so if the casein's broken down quickly enough i think if it never gets from the stomach into the intestine i don't see why it should cause a problem it then becomes a, a more of a question of random chance whether you think you're breaking down uh, casein quick enough not to cause inflammatory changes in your gut um, uh, so I was slightly dubious about casein from that basis. And you could then make arguments whether, again, unsubstantiated, but you could argue whether A1 casein is more persistent than A2 casein. So the, um, the Guernsey milk is fine, but the uh, Frisian milk is not fine. Um, or goat's milk is fine because the casein is different from Frisian casein. Um, uh, and that kind of pushed me very slightly towards going... Um, paleo uh, in terms of taking dairy out. This is back in probably 2005, 2006, long, 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 long time ago. And it was impossible. Um, mm. I was, you know, I was buying lamb chops and giving the meat to the cats and eating a little bit of the meat and the fat. And it, it was just so restrictive in terms of how do you eat real food, but you're trying to get it just from me I, I found it very very difficult and i gave up and we, because i couldn't get enough fat basically um and this was something i i revisited again back in may when i went um carnival and just to look at practicalities because i tried it a long long time ago and it'd been completely impracticable um and i just found a few dodgers and it worked fine also i decided to give up on worrying about protein creep at that point i was only going to do it for three weeks and so i gave up worrying about protein creep once you give up protein creep and you go to uh, a more an easier ratio you can eat two parts of fat to one part of protein that that means my protein ends up between 100 and 150 grams per day um 
it's much, much easier if you're going to accept the protein load. Are you trying to eat a paleo optimal diet where you're not got dairy coming in? It's phenomenally difficult to get the fat content in. Mm. Uh, and I, that, that's why I tried it. I'd given up with it. Um, and I thought, well, when I, when I came to, 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 to try carnivore, uh, on a pure, is this a practical thing to do for anybody? Um, the, um, it was letting the protein creep upwards was what made it easiest. Um, and then I could get the fat. All you then have to do is buy a block of lard and uh, a beef dripping and, uh, and that, that have your fat with, the, with your meat and um, drink it if you have to. Uh, and that, that turned out to be much, much easier. But trying to do it originally with keeping protein low it was practically impossible. Mm. I did it for a, about a week and it was just, I can't do this long term. Sure. So, uh, but but I say, once you give up on keeping protein low, it's it's very, very straightforward to do and not particularly socially acceptable, but, but it's it's very straightforward to do. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that, you know, with um, people attempting different ratios of fat to protein, in their diet, they, they get different results depending on who they are as well. You know, Ambro Hearn talks about needing a lot more fat in order to feel good physically and mentally. And, uh, you know, emphasizes, I think, things like suet and um, bone marrow and that, that sort of thing and, and adding dripping and that sort of thing. Um, maybe a lot of pork fat too. And uh, yeah, I suppose, is if you're trying to keep the protein really low then it's very hard hard and it kind of makes you wonder whether it is evolutionarily appropriate because if you can't find a fatty animal that's fatty enough without you know discarding lots of meat then you have to ask is that what early humans did it's a very difficult it's an impossible question to answer really uh but it, it does make you wonder if um, this idea that you can gain the system by keeping protein ultra low is uh, has a has a has a proper basis in in reality. Yeah, and it, ultimately, it, that, that I think at the moment that that question is fairly impossible to answer. Um, yeah, I don't think we have the information to to take a stab at that. I I, I listened to Ron Rosedale's presentation that did the rounds recently. And I have a num- number of issues with it. I mean, I, he was one of the very, very influential people uh, on my early days. Um, uh, he was, again, right back in the early 2000s, was talking very similar subjects to the ones he's talking at the moment. And uh, um, uh, I have a huge amount of time for him. Um, but at the moment, I don't think there's enough to convince me, that's for sure, that, that, that extreme restriction is, I'd kind of just accepted it. And uh, you thought, okay, high protein intake is going to raise growth hormone, growth hormone is going to raise ALGF1, ALGF1 seems to be associated with cancer growth on all sorts of fronts. So that, that was the kind of, and I'd never really gone and checked it. It's kind of, it was the narrative and, and I'm I, I not, not expecting to live forever um, <laughs> to want to try and just be healthy while I'm around. Um, I, I, I did start going and checking it. And again, uh, this, these are questions which should have been neatly answered a very long time ago. 
Um, and they kind of, they may have been, but because most scientific research are more than five or 10 years old tends to get ignored, there's not much going on about it at the moment. Um, but you found that if you went back and looked at the very early papers on um, uh, controlling type one diabetes, these children came out stunted um, mm. uh, because the level of uh, insulin and the, the protocols of insulin that they were using on them um, never made them new insulinemic. Um, they would have multiple hyperglycemia periods with very low insulin levels until they got them. They're basically given enough insulin to keep them out of ketoacidosis. Mm -hmm. That was the initial goal back in the uh, very early days. And they came up stunted and they worked out eventually that um, growth hormone requires insulin to generate OLGF1. And that to me was a ah, aha sort of find. Um, so uh, theoretically, you can have growth hormone through the roof. If you fast somebody, growth hormone goes through the roof. ILGF1 goes through the floor because there's no insulin, um, minimal insulin being secreted. So the conversion or the, uh, the induction of production of ILGF1 goes down despite growth hormone levels being high. Uh, and at that point, I started to think, well, maybe I don't have to worry about protein intake and even growth hormone levels. In fact, if you want to keep your muscle mass, then keeping growth hormone up is probably going to be a good thing. Um, and as you get older, you're going to want to keep your muscle mass. And I'd like to keep my muscle mass. I'm getting old now. Um, the, uh, but keeping RGF1 low at the same time, um, well, you then talk about fasting. And you can go to Amber O'Hearn and uh, her concepts of um, um, fasting mimics ketogenic diet. <laughs> putting things the wrong way around, which I, I rather like that, because um, uh, I'd always thought of it as ketogenic diet mimicking fasting. Mm. And flipping it around is a good way to do it. So uh, I've not measured anything uh, at this stage. I keep, I mean, I'm maybe I ought to um, just get an IOGF1 insulin measured and just out of curiosity. Uh, I'll get around to it one day, but I so far haven't. Mm. Mm, yeah, and you know, the stuff about um the way i suppose to summarize what rosedale talks about it's really that um like you were saying um if you have a higher protein load then you have these growth factors and i've heard other uh longevity researchers like david sinclair talking about this and mTOR is a pathway that is activated as well um with a lot of protein and the idea being that you promote the growth of potentially promote the growth of of cancer and the, okay, um, if you think about a potential story for this, when we were hunter-gatherers in the dim and distant past and eating mammoth and, you know, say there was lots of protein in there and we, um, we would grow big and strong um, and muscular, but then die young. And it didn't matter because we had done enough to... Uh, pass on our genes to the next generation and hunt successfully for the time that we were there. But, you know, that's just one of those just so stories that there's not necessarily any evidence to back up. And like you're saying, when you, the older you get, the more um, bone and muscle density actually want up to a point because, you know, the best indicator of whether you're going to have uh, enough muscular strength to get, you, get yourself, to hold yourself up tomorrow is how much you've got to date. So um, it seems slightly logically backward to minimize the protein, um, or at least uh, to the point where you, you know, you're taking only as much protein as you need to know more. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're, a, if you're a mouse in a cage, 
having muscle mass and muscle density doesn't matter. Yes. All over, you've not got very far to go before you uh, hit the ground of the cage. So I, I, that, that, that was always in the back of my mind was that um, getting frail is probably not a very good thing to do. Um, getting frail if you're a mouse really doesn't matter. Um, so these um, mice with um, uh, growth hormone receptor knockouts that um, Prof Laren um, uh, won the, um, the sort of prize with um, because he's got the longest lived mouse in the world, um, they're growth hormone receptor knockout mice. Um, so they don't, they got tons of growth hormone. It doesn't have a receptor to work on. They don't have any LGF1. Um, they're stunted, they're fat, they're massively insulin sensitive um, because that's why they're fat. Um, and uh, they live many hundreds of days longer than they should do. And nobody's come anywhere near getting a mouse to live that long using any other technique that I can come across. Um, and, uh, but those mice are, it doesn't matter how frail those mice are. Yeah. They're sitting in a cage, they're not gonna do anything else. Whereas if, if I fall off the top of the climbing wall, I'm expecting not to break my leg when I hit the ground. Um, sure. um, so I, I, I can see pros and cons. But of course, even something as simple as Atkins induction um, that'll drop LGF1 levels by about 20%. Um, I don't, uh, the paper that I found didn't have growth hormone levels. So, um, but, but even using a protein heavy Atkins induction compared to the standard American diet, you're going to drop, drop LGF1 anyway. Whether you would drop it as much as going to a protein restricted, seriously ketogenic diet, again, I don't think anyone's looked at that unless it's in rodents. But of course, you look at ketogenic diets in rodents and they are so extreme just to get them into ketosis. Um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of rodent studies, but I have trouble translating or trying to pick out what of the changes in a rodent ketogenic diet are from the ketosis um, or from the protein restriction, because you've got to have them down under 10% protein as, a, as an intake. And, and some of the ketogenic diets for rodents are methionine restricted anyway, just so that you smash the liver up they have liver damage mm. um, and um, they can't um, they can't export their um, uh, fatty acids as triglycerides so they export them as ketones um, uh, and uh, I think F3666 is the standard ketogenic diet for rodents and it's 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 specifically methionine restricted to enhance the ketogenesis um, the longevity studies using that type of diet have always had normal methionine added back to them so um, and they won't have been as ketogenic as, uh, as the um, as the methionine restricted one, but uh, um, but they still deliver the goods on a rodent basis with ketosis. And again, it's a longevity increase of about twenty percent. Mm. Uh, pretty much the same as you get with um, uh, rapamycin, um, and you get with uh, metformin, and you get with um, uh, glucosamine, glucosamine, they're the, the, they're the four convincing longevity um, uh, tweaks for rodents. Um, and there are, there are indications that glucosamine might actually work in humans. Um, mm. That's an awful lot easier than doing a ketogenic diet for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's an awful lot <laughs> less toxic than taking rapamycin. <laughs> um, but uh, no, 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 I think there was a post half written somewhere about that one. 
there's some remarkable results with um, these combined therapies in mice where any any one of them alone gives them marginal improvements in life expectancy, but then put them together and you get this whopping increase. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, there's a lot of interesting speculation about, I went to see a talk recently by, I can't remember her name now, but um, she spoke about exactly this and uh, made the mistake, in my opinion, to point out blue zones in humans and saying that it's low animal, you know, it's plant-based that's really um, leading the way in terms of what we've got uh, evidence-wise. I asked her a question about it afterwards and, uh, you know, because I don't think blue zones really stack up very well. But um, yeah, I mean, so you would you describe what you're eating now as a kind of paleolithic ketogenic diet where you you don't really do dairy now, and it's you know you're not particularly restricting protein, but you're trying to keep the fat high still. And yeah. that's what I do. Basically. Um, uh, again, with, I, I'm a very pragmatic person. Um, uh, I um, I don't really want to spend any more of my d- disposable income on, on food than I have to. Um, and I, I simply found that if you, uh, um, you can buy a block of, in the UK, uh, you can buy a, a block of beef mince for pound uh, 60 for 500 grams. Um, and two of those, uh, one, one, one and a half of those with a block of beef dripping, that, that's me fed for the day. Um, and um, I'm still at the level where I'm um, buying lamb's hearts twice a week or uh, liver twice a week or kidney twice a week, all of which are relatively low in fat. And you have to add enormous amount of fat to keep those at anything like ketogenic levels. Um, um, but uh, I've managed techniques for getting more fat without having to physically um, eat the fat that they cooked in. Uh, you, you can get around it. There are ways and means. Um, so it's an extremely cheap way of eating as well. This is, this is not expensive. Um, it's extremely um, socially restrictive. Yes. It really is. Um, uh, we go out for a meal um, and uh, I'll have steak. Um, splash out on the steak, that's fine. Um, but that's only a steak. I have to come home and get a whole load of fat to go with that. <laughs> Under dire circumstances, I'll eat butter. Um, if I'm at a restaurant and there's nothing I can add to my steak, um, and, and it drives my wife up the wall that I won't eat the salad that gets served with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's keto. It's definitely keto, but no, I'm not going to. Don't want to go there. No. Yeah, that's fair enough. I know. What positive changes have you noticed after adopting that kind of diet? It was the, the, uh, the backache and the snoring were the, the two, um, but there's a whole long string of low-grade changes um, that. Um, but I stopped snoring. That, 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 that was number one. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, I had a, well, Amber O'Hearn says her husband did the same thing when he went carnivore. Uh, and I do wonder whether there is some sort of trigger and possibly from the casein or, or secondarily from the casein acting on the gut. Um, but I think anything that I do that um, uh, decreases the congestion of my sinuses uh, makes it much less likely that I'll snore. I've got a horribly, horribly broken nose. It's been broken a minimum of twice um, uh, as a youngster. Um, uh, it was never fixed or set or anything like that. Um, and it's basically obstructed from the upper nasal septum on this one 
uh, and it then does a 90 degree bend and the cotyledonous part of the nasal septum brooks the other nostril. Wow. Um, so, and, and that's, I, I, I went to the GP about it once. He said, well, I can refer you to a, to a surgeon, but just break your nose again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose he will. I'll give that a miss as an anesthetist. <laughs> it sounds like you've almost got a, a kind of, like a, a, a sort of a clarinet or something. You know, you've yeah. got a sort of set of pipes there. It does, yeah. And if I roll on my back, even now, if I roll on my back, it it, uh, it, it will still make noise and I get rolled back off of my back. Um, but even with the most active efforts to stay off my back before, uh, it was a recurrent marital problem. Okay. And now it's stopped? Uh, well, it stopped. And I, I had a relapse with it. I had a relapse with the back pain as well. And I was doing so well, I thought I would try coffee because I love coffee and I haven't drunk coffee for um, uh, for four or five years, something like that. And uh, I had a relapse um, when we were in Serrano um, in uh, oh, a place in Italy, just around the corner of the Amalfi Coast. We were there at a, a cat conference and the double espressos were just, oh, they were so good. Um, and I did that and uh, um, we came home and I carried on having the occasion of double espresso and I have arthritis in my fingers um, and uh, God, it flared. I was, wow. It was just horrible. I could, I was noticing it while I was operating, which I, you know, never noticed before, um, but just using artery forceps and things were, were painful. Um, so I took the coffee out and went more seriously keto and it, it settled down um, and it went more or less completely when I went carnivore. Wow. Um, and because I'd changed, my presumption was I had changed a lot of the content of my gut. So if it was a gut content that was truking it off and the caffeine was just opening up the tight junctions, because uh, I've had an anecdote somewhere that caffeine, or coffee, not caffeine, um, that coffee can open tight junctions the way gluten and casein can, but there, I can't find no evidence base for that on, on PubMed at all. Um, but there's a rumour that that goes on. And, uh, but I thought, I've changed my food. I've almost certainly changed my uh, gut bacterial population. Maybe I'll get away with coffee and I can have maybe a coffee a week. Um, uh, so I went back to the double espressos in the UK, not Italian. Um, and uh, low back flared horribly. Snoring came back horribly. And I was like, my word. Yeah, I was, um, and it didn't happen straight away. So I may be putting two and two together and making 35. Um, but I had one coffee a week for three or four weeks, which was fine. And then we had half term and uh, took the kids to lots of cafes because when you're trying to bribe children to go shopping, you have to take them to the cafe. And uh, I got through quite a lot of double espressos in the first three or four days. And I was, uh, the back pain came back with a vengeance um, and the snoring came back slightly. Um, so I took the coffees out again two weeks ago and the back pain has settled down now. But it wow. Long, it was back on the ibuprofen. Mm. So that, 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 the coffee was my one weakness and that, that really screwed everything up. And I really, you don't know how much I like coffee. <laughs> it's, uh, so it's gone again. Um, uh, I, can get a, I can get a notion. I, I, I can definitely sympathise and feel your pain because... I've spoken before in the podcast about how I used to smoke a lot of cigarettes. I used to smoke 40 a day when I was in China. And I, um, 
we used to drink a lot of coffee too, you know, working in restaurants after I left school, easy access. I used to have cups of espresso and seem to respond, uh, you know, in a kind of, at first, uh, in a very, you know, I get these huge dopamine rushes and I feel absolutely amazing. I'm on a high. It's a nice feeling. Yes. yes. And then eventually you're maintaining. So you just have to drink it to feel normal, which is the same with any kind of stimulant. But um, it's, uh, it's seductive. And I, I think it takes a long time to quieten those brain circuits down to the point where the cravings kind of subside and it's just something that you used to do. But man, when you get back on the on the on the um, on the train, it's hard to get off again. Yes. Well, I, I'm lucky. I had no choice. My back hurt like hell. Um, so yeah. <laughs> and to, I'm also lucky that I have absolutely no problem with opioids. As um, I, I really can't. Yeah. I, I throw up like hell with opioids, so I've never ever had any temptation to 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 go that route on a recreational basis. Um, it's just nauseating. When I've had to take opioids for many, well, uh, for serious low back problems, I was given a large supply of codeine, and they said take as much as you like um, till the pain goes away, and you just spend the day throwing up. Um, so, <laughs> but I, the, the 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 kind of this feels nice from coffee. It's, I mean, I've never taken any more potent stimulants than caffeine. But when you're completely withdrawn from it when you could you're completely clear of it um one double espresso has a very noticeable uh, mental effect either yeah. that or a placebo effect it doesn't matter you still get the mental effect um but no can't do that and uh, that, that i'm yeah I, <laughs> i'm a bit pissed off about that can't help that <laughs> yeah me too i i you know I, I wish i could i wish i could handle it i wish that feeling was um you know you, that you weren't just chasing the initial one but uh such is life, I suppose. Um, the finger arthritis was interesting because um, my father had finger arthritis. Um, yeah. and, uh, back as a kid, um, I was heavily, heavily into whitewater and well, flat water racing and whitewater kayaking. Um, and I'd get home and my fingers would still be frozen by the time I got home. Uh, my dad was going, you'll regret that. You'll get arthritis in your fingers. And I'm thinking, no. Kind of implies you've got arthritis in your fingers, and there you go. I turned sixty, and it just starts, um, and that's gone now. And because I don't kayak very much anymore, but I climb now. Um, finger strength and finger joints are incredibly important. Mm. Uh, uh, once you get off the the, the, the starting point, climbs onto the ones where you hang on by your fingernail. I'm not quite at that level, but I'm still. I'm now climbing stuff where finger strength has become much much more important um and um that was the other drive to 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 keep a off of the coffee uh, and b uh, off of the um whatever else it was i stopped when i went carnival because the fingers have improved no end and um i'm hoping that they're going to get stronger because they've got a couple more grades of climbs to go before <laughs> <laughs> the top grades are really I'm too old to get the top grades. You watch these kids climbing and they're, they're just amazing. Um, I can't, I'm never going to get there, but, but I'm quite happy with what I'm doing at the moment. That's cool. I had the climber Dave McLeod on, the, on an early episode of the podcast and he went keto to drop a wee bit of weight. Um, 
he was afraid he might drop a bit of strength, but actually went up a grade in his late 30s. And uh, his depression of 25 years lifted and hasn't come back. It was quite a cool story. Yeah. Um, but basically, it's all about the, oops, sorry. It's all about the, the the ratio between the strength of the forearm and your weight, right? So if you can improve well, yeah, one because... or the other, then you're laughing. Yeah, yeah. If I had a bad day on Saturday morning, but apart from that, it's been it's been really good. Particular, but you can never tell. I've only been climbing for a year, so I'm still on the upward improvement curve. But you can't tell how much is through going carnivore and how much is because I've been keto all the way through. Yeah. You say that I, I, I kind of envy these people that get the results from going keto because keto is so easy socially. Yeah. Just, you know, somebody brings you a steak and chips. Okay. You eat the salad, you eat the steak, don't eat the chips. It's not the end of the world. Um, but just eating the steak and leaving the whole plate crowded is <laughs> slightly more of a problem. Yeah. But no, it's 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 great because I'm I, I saying I, when I did Atkins induction, I was crippled for two weeks. Couldn't go upstairs without getting tired leg muscles. Wow! And I was seriously compromised cycling for a lot of push biking those days for six to eight weeks, something like that. Yeah, my friend John found this exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a, a fairly recent publication looking at um, elite level um, walking races, um, and uh, they showed that um, going deep keto is bad for your performance. Um, and they've done a massive amount of work on these um, elite walking races, um, and everything was stopped at the three week mark. And I just think what I was like when I was push biking, not at the level, just push biking um, at the three week mark, I was still being crucified. It was just, you know, you're all right on the level, but the minute hill climb came up, then it was, mm. oh, I'm tired. Um, and that took me, I was in my 40s then, um, and that took me probably six months to get over completely, um, though I was fully functional by month. Um, uh, but, but again, you look at, it comes back to looking at scientific papers and, and you look at your own biases and you look at the biases of the authors and you just wonder why they chose three weeks to um because again they they they, they cite um all of the, the low-carb athletic literature and they talk about people needing four to six weeks to adapt um and then they terminate their study at three weeks <laughs> <laughs> you know come on come on there's this you know i'm biased i'm not quite so obvious with my biases as that <laughs> yeah yeah you've got you've got an amazing thread of posts on uh the blog called protons yeah, and right. it, it you know um i think if there's any scientists that come to me asking about where to start with all this i say well if you want something really interesting beyond the sort of uh, higher level stuff you go to protons and read from the start because it takes us from the beginning of complex life a few billion years ago. Yeah, because it parallels the life posts as well because they're, they're, they're you can't separate the two really. Um, it's, uh, yeah. Yes, no you know, it takes you from, from all the way to the present day and how our mitochondria, which I've spoken about a lot on the podcast, the little power plants within our cells are fueled. I mean, how would you summarize what you learned from the proton series of posts? And I should say that this question comes from Tucker Goodrich. 
<laughs> How would you summarize it? How would you summarize it? You got, it's about 40 posts long. <laughs> I know, that's a bit of an unfair question. Don't, don't eat omega-6 fats if you can help it. Again, what level? That's a very murky question. Yeah. Uh, and probably go low carb. But, but that doesn't, it, it has, it, over the years, it developed its own vocabulary, really. Um, and it, it's quite difficult to talk about the protons thread to people who've not worked at following it because mm. it says things that make grammatical sense. But unless you've actually had the layer after layer after layer of put in place first, don't make any sense at all. It's kind of, and of course the whole, <laughs> the whole thing ties into insulin as well because the whole protons concept is, is reactive oxygen species generation. Um, and that's intrinsic to insulin signaling and it's intrinsic to insulin resistance as well. So low levels of reactive oxygen species to get insulin to work and uh, high levels to stop it working. And uh, the protons tries to explain how those levels are generated. Um, it all um, started really, well, the two things triggered it off. Uh, one thing was um, I'd realized that low carbing was good for me. I'd realized that high saturated fat appeared to be good for me. And I sat down, um, and tried to work out what was different between the two processes. Um, and started, uh, and at that point I had to realize, I had to work out exactly where the energy came from because I was kind of working at that stage at the level of uh, undergraduate BSc biochemistry, the stuff I was taught um, uh, in the seventies at Royal Veterinary College, which was pretty good biochemistry and it's not really changed hugely since then. Um, but I wasn't thinking, I was thinking that the glucose is oxidized to carbon dioxide and, and releases its water and fat is oxidized to carbon dioxide and, and the hydrogen is oxidized to, to water. Um, but I hadn't gone through the fine details. Um, so I had to sit down and we've been told all about these NADH was a cofactor for this part of the Krebs cycle and this part and it was a cofactor for glycolysis. And I hadn't really worked out where these energy molecules actually produce the energy from. And at that point I had to start reading about NADH acting on being oxidized through complex one. I had to find out what complex one was, what complex two was, because it's not the next one in the chain, <laughs> what complex three was, complex four was. Uh, and I'm kind of, these are things that basically you go through a biochemistry course and you basically know them, but you don't think about them. Mm. Um, and I had to make myself sit down and work out that Actually, you can do nothing with NADH without complex one. Um, and you've got this other input from complex two. And actually, if you look at how fat metabolizes, um, it's all completely separate. Um, and it, it produces acetylcholine, which is going to go through the same Krebs cycle as glucose does. Um, but it's also got a big chunk of its energy coming from this stuff called um, electron transporting flavor protein and that's going in at electron transporting flavor protein dehydrogenase and nobody told me anything about that in biochemistry I mean, they talk about beta oxidation and it, it makes acetyl-CoA and acetyl-CoA goes into Krebs cycle um, and I had to work out more or less from scratch what the different inputs were and 
how they might generate reactive oxygen species. And I've worked out that the more input you had from electron transporting flavor protein dehydrogenase, the more likely you were to generate reactive oxygen species. Um, and I kind of got that far in, in the, the protons ideas when uh, Dave Spire um, emailed me and said, I've written a whole load of stuff on this, here's my paper. Um, and uh, he comes from a slightly different perspective. He comes from it from the uh, origin of Lecker, which is the last eukaryote common ancestor. Hmm. Um, and his feeling was that if you had too much FADH and per unit uh, an ADH, so you have a lot of input a little way down the electron transport chain, you would drive an awful lot of electrons the wrong way through complex one, and you get far too many reactive oxygen species being produced, and that was damaging. Uh, and his whole interest was in the ratio of NADH to FADH, FDH2, uh, same as mine was, um, but he'd gone on to look at it really, the cell, the eukaryote cell uses the peroxisome to protect itself from too much FADH. What am I getting? beyond it. But, but basically he was looking at techniques evolutionarily that the body used to avoid having too much reaction oxygen species being produced. Um, whereas I was a little bit further on, a little bit sideways from that, whereas I was looking at how you make the right amount of reactive oxygen species to do what you wanted to do. Mm. Um, um, but the two things were basically looking at this ratio of where the energy comes from rather than glucose versus fat that glucose was predominantly NADH and fat was much much more biased towards FADH2 um, and that it was the ratio of those two um, and when when I heard from Dave Spire I kind of realized I might actually be barking up the right tree because um, uh, his um, ISA's paper the, one of the early ones was, was very very convincing I found that really well worth reading um, and uh, so it went on from there. Uh, and th th there was a paper um, that was given by Stefan, is it Guinea? Yeah. Is that how it's pronounced? That's yeah. easier, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, the paper was that um, insulin resistance is an antioxidant defense mechanism in cells. So the ability to resist insulin is how the cell protects itself from being given too many calories. Um, and the, in that paper was the core concept that nanomoles of superoxide or hydrogen peroxide trigger insulin or, or are intrinsic to insulin signaling and very large levels of superoxide or hydrogen peroxide are uh, terminate insulin signaling when there is too much of it. Yeah, um, and uh, the rest of the protons thread went on to try and work out how given metabolic substrates would fit into that protocol. Do they generate a little bit, or do they generate too much? And um, what's too little? What's too much? And um, how does that control the calorie input to the cell? Um, but the other, uh, so, so that, that really protons is all about controlling calorie intake into, into an individual cell. Mm. And obviously, lots and lots and lots of cells. 
um, and they're all taking up calories. Uh, and as they get full, they start saying, okay, I've got enough calories, I'll um, become insulin resistant now, and that'll just shut, shut down. That's normal physiology, I don't need any more than this. Um, as the, while insulin is working, the calories going into cells, it's going into adipocytes, it's going into hepatocytes, um, and uh, it's not particularly going into the brain. The brain, uh, I'll come back in a second. Um, and my, my next extension to protons is that there should be circuits in the brainstem where reactive oxygen species are produced in the same way. I don't think the brain will ever do anything using the opposite technique of what's happening in the periphery. There will be a group of cells in the brain that mimic the rest of the body and as initially the body will fill up. When the body is full the calories will start to go into the cells in the brain and the cells in the brain will go oh we don't need to eat anymore. Uh, and and that, that's ultimately what will control appetite. There'll be all sorts of upper cerebral dopamine things as well, yes. But the core thing is, does the brain, brain stem probably, or ventral um, hypothalamus, consider there are adequate calories around to stop you wanting to eat? And that will be taken from the same processes in the electron transport chain that determine whether calories are going to enter cells or not. Okay, which was a nice, simple idea until I found about uh, there's um, NADH, uh, there's uh, NADH, NADPH oxidase subgroup four, which produces reactive oxygen species um, outside the mitochondria, just on, in, in the cytoplasm, uh, and that to me was a major, major blow. <laughs> it should all be the mitochondria that control uh, calorie increase. But it turns out that, that uh, again, there are cross, there is crosstalk between um, NOx4 is what it's talked about. There's, there's crosstalk between NX4 and the mitochondria, um, and you, you actually need both of them. Um, but NOx4 is, is interesting because I think people think they can drug it quite easily to get rid of insulin resistance. Um, I'm not sure what, what it won't work. Um, but um, but there are the two systems. It's quite nice actually because as far as I can, uh, metformin works on. Um, uh, on um, uh, the electron transport chain, it locks one of the FAD2H2 enzymes, visceral um, um, 3 phosphate dehydrogenase, but it won't lock um, NOx4. Um, so um, you can, uh, I was wondered how if you completely, if you blocked mitochondrial dehydrogen, uh, mitochondrial visceral 3 dehydrogenase, how on earth you ever start an engine signaling because I thought you had to have a functional electron transport, you know, you had to have that input to the electron transport chain. Uh, turns out you don't, you can start off with NOx4, um, uh, which means you get less signaling, which is what metformin does, so you get all good and, um, and that, 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 that'll be fine. I think I'm rambling a bit now, aren't I? But no, I mean, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to let you expound on the proton thread as much as you liked because it was it's such a i think um important point for people to get into the real nitty-gritty of ultimately what makes a low carb low linoleic acid diet so much more healthy than one that has more in it and it's it's really you know it really breaks it down so i think people for people who've never heard of that before and who've just listened to what you said they're probably completely confused but that's fine too because they can check it out if they want to but for other people it's i think who've, who've looked at it it's really nice to sort of hear your yeah. thought process about how it progressed and again it, it it 
came get again it comes down to why omega-6 fatty acids are such a problem um, because the normal physiology to resist extra calories coming into the cell are from reactive oxygen species being generated um, and one of the main sources is electron transporting flavor protein dehydrogenase the one that comes from fat but it, the electron transporting flavor protein only gets reduced on the first step of beta oxidation where the body the physiology puts a double bond into your saturated fat and in the process of putting the double bond in takes away two hydrogens the two hydrogens drop onto FADH to become FADH2 and they go off to generate reactive oxygen species. If you've already got the double bond there, there's no need to do that dehydration step or the dehydrogenation step. Uh, so there is no FADH generated if there's already a double bond there. So you can't make um, electron transporting flavor protein or you can't reduce it. So you can't input from the double bond where you would input from a single bond in the saturated fat uh, into the electron transport chain. And that messes up all of the, that, that, that won't generate reactive oxygen species. So you will end up when the cell is accepting too many calories and insulin is signaling, the cell will keep on accepting the calories. And obviously if there's a ton of ATP available, it's not gonna get put down the electron transport chain, but it will go into storage. So the body will accept the calories uh, and uh, it will store them as triglycerides, which is why you get ectopic triglycerides all over the place. Mm. Um, that, that, that was the inability to generate correct physiological insulin resistance um, keeps calories coming into a cell and the, uh, the omosics polyunsaturated fatty acids do that reliably. Um, the one big, big bugbear I have is that omega-3 fatty acids should do the same thing even worse hmm. and you really really have to tease the studies apart and there's a kind of split you can find indications that ALA alpha linoleic acid is obesogenic but you can find loads more that say it's not um, and th this this is one of the things that I'm thinking about I'm well aware that my hypothesis has got loads of bits that still need tidying up around it um, but ALA should be more obesogenic in the models where they've presented it almost accidentally as part of another intervention uh, it quite often does come out as being obesogenic but when it's been used as a primary intervention uh, it's usually anti-obesogenic and again Tucker might have ideas as to how some wise because he's more interested in uh, I'm interested in signaling at the level of the electron transport chain Mm. There are layers and layers and layers of, of signaling above that. Above that. Um, and um, uh, once you start breaking polyunsaturated fatty acid molecules and making them 4 HNE, you know, the, 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 the ones Tucker will talk to you about already, yeah. um, then that's the next level up. Um, and there are levels above that on cytokines and, and whatever else you want to talk about. Um, but the bit that interests me is at the very, very basic level. And at the very, very basic level, uh, ALA should be worse than than than, than laic acid. Um, so it's interesting. Go in every single study that's done, and it doesn't. Um, so this is again, I, I like things that that really mess my ideas up because I can go and look at them and try and work out: am I wrong, or am I still in the right ballpark? But 
this is done differently for this reason. And on that one, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, certainly the, the omega-6 sort of linoleic acid damage is myriad and on different levels, like you say. And, you know, from just a, a logical point of view, I think we are exquisitely adapted to the environment that we evolved in. That's why we're here, because our parents and their ancestors survived. But um, we, um, we, you know, and we, we have a certain ability to, de, uh, to deal with uh, linoleic acid in the body, but above a certain threshold, not. I th yeah. You know, it might be that we had evolutionarily more exposure to omega-3 fatty acids um, that allows us to deal with them in a more constructive way. Yeah, but I still want to get down to the nuts and bolts of the electron. <laughs> Why we adapt and how we, what we did makes it different. And again, of course, you, 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 we, we talk glibly about omega-3 fatty acids, but really it's only ALA that's going to end up in the mitochondria. Mm. Yeah, the electron transport, if the um, carbon chain is longer than 18 long, it's going to end up in a peroxisome. Mm. Um, the peroxisomes are where very long chain um, fatty acids are diverted. And by the time they come out of the peroxisome, they're going to be C8, which is basically just um, caprylic acid. And that's the mitochondria are quite happy with that. Um, mm -hmm. So, and again, you end up on the uh, going a level up onto G protein, G, G protein coupled receptors that, that the very long chain fatty acids do all sorts of exciting things with. But again, that's the level that's above the level that I'm, I want to tease at. I tease at what happens at the very, very most basic level within the mitochondria and um, all the stuff that happens up at cell surface level is all very exciting very interesting uh, and undoubtedly um is very important um but it in terms of insight i'm still back down stuck at this is what happens with reactive oxygen species generation if you do this 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 and this um and uh yeah high level stuff clearly matters but i want it to fit in to a to a to a, a standard paradigm that mm. the, 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 the protons thread has given a lot of explanatory power to a lot of um, apparently unrelated things like how winching signals and how winching resistance happens. Um, and I, I, I think it will turn out that insulin induced insulin resistance, which I think is very, very important if talking about um, uh, Jim Johnson and so insulin induced insulin will be a reactive oxygen species triggered phenomenon um, whether it's going to come from the mitochondria or from the NOx4 system uh, I, I wouldn't guess but I'm, I guess it might be both actually mm, be interesting to see how it all shakes out um, talking about your work as a veterinary surgeon yeah. you know I've seen a um, big up surgeon uh, people feeding their dogs raw meat now and um, getting, getting onto a sort of species appropriate diet, if you like, for dogs. And it seems to be maybe happening a bit faster than people are realizing there's a species appropriate diet for humans. Um, you know, can you, can you talk about that at all? Um, it's grassroots led, basically. I think there's, on a grassroots basis, um, then, people are just doing it there are a lot of problems within the profession of people doing it um, there are 
um, referral centres that won't accept raw-fed dogs because they're excreting Campylobacter and Salmonella in their feces on a regular basis. Right, yeah. Um, and the, there is serious concern on a, a human health basis that, 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 that people are living with dogs that are excreting um, what are potential pathogens. Wow. However, I'm old. Um, and I went through a um, in microbiology back in the 70s. Uh, one of our lecturers um, drew at the front of the lecture theatre and said, right, um, if you go to Sainsbury's, you could use the Sainsbury's word, I think sure it applies to all other supermarkets or all other butchers, and you buy a chicken and you bring it home. You're very careful how you handle it. You clean all the knives and everything afterwards. You roast it in the oven and you culture your feces um, next day, you'll be excreting salmonella. Wow. You can culture your work surface at home, however much you've cleaned it, you'll culture salmonella. You can culture the uh, uncooked chicken, obviously, if you like, and you'll culture salmonella, and you won't be ill. You'll be perfectly okay. And his question was, what is it about some people that will give them acute salmonellosis when you are going to Sainsbury's once a week, buying a chicken, roasting it for Sunday dinner, being grossly exposed to salmonella and having absolutely no problems at all okay so i've worked on i believe the guy i don't see any reason why i should have been making it up um uh, obviously it doesn't matter nowadays i didn't apply in the uk nowadays because all chickens are vaccinated against salmonella but then we're coming through with campylobacter um and again again i went to another cpd course on campylobacter and the guy was saying yeah we culture this feces and we find this dog with chronic diarrhea has got Campylobacter, um, but other times we'll coach your dogs with perfect normal feces and they'll be positive for Campylobacter as well. And he said actually Campylobacter is probably commoner in normal dog feces than it is in in chronic diarrhea dog feces. Um, and, but these dogs are still normal dogs, normally fed, excreting Campylobacter, are still going into referral centres for orthopaedic surgery. Um, I don't know whether people simply have got a, they've not been through, I remember these things is my problem. Hmm. I remember that, 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 that a human household cooking a chicken, everyone in the household will excrete salmonella for 24 hours uh, without getting ill. And I remember that if you really want to get a positive Campylobacter sample, take it from a healthy dog. It's more common in them than it is. Well, we're told these things and the people that are telling us have no axe to grind about anything. Nobody even thought about raw feeding uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, well, apart from Tom Lonsdale, but, so there were people, but, but this was not an issue. Whereas nowadays it is an issue. And uh, the, um, I, I think, I don't really know what you make of it. Uh, I, as far as I can tell, the dogs do perfectly well on it. And to get clinical salmonellosis, uh, from a, um, a dog or a cat that's fed raw meat. Um, I think if it happens, you are on an absolute godsend publication straight away because if you can find something down on raw feeding, it gets published like that. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, th there have been some hiccups with raw feeding, but when you think of how many hiccups there have been with commercial feeding, uh, I have lists in my head 
um, of um, disasters that we've had through commercial feeding um, over the years. They, they go on and on and on and on. There's about one every three years. Um, again, back in the early 80s, we had Key-Gaskell syndrome, which was never proven to be nutritional, but I'm damn sure it was. It was an, a failure of the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic autonomic nervous Sounds system. terrible. Um, these cats presented with dry mouth, dilated, fixed dilated pupils, um, complete gastric stasis, complete intestinal stasis, um, tachycardia, fast heart rate, um, and it was intractable, utterly, utterly intractable. If you eventually started stomach tubing them or put in a feeding tube um, to get calories into them, they just projectile vomited it out. Um, um, we put them on anticholinesterases, and the death rate was horrendous. They, they mostly died. Um, and uh, it, it just disappeared, um, my, my suspicions. Um, there was a place in the States that found they could use chicken offal and put it in a can and sell it as cat food. And the chicken offal was very, very high in phosphate. And there was a cluster of hyperphosphatemic renal failure cases surrounding this factory. Um, there was another case where somebody found you could stick salmon in a can and sell it as cat food, and the cats all got... Um, um, coagulation problems from the massive, massive, massive amounts of omega-3 fatty acids that they were getting. Wow. We all know about, um, well, there's a current one on the go with, I think Tom Norton blogged about it, with taurine deficiency in dogs, which never been heard of before, but it's, it's a feature of these modern paleo diets, dogs, where um, they don't want to make them all meat because you can't really sell that in dry food. It doesn't work, so they're, they're, they're so sort of define them with pea protein and, and similar legumes, um, which is not quite paleo, um, but there are associated with one or two of these diets of taurine deficiency cardiomyopathy. Um, I'd say Tom's quite dismissive of it um, in his blog post, but to me, the ones that actually end up seeing a cardiologist in dilated heart failure are the tip of the icebergs. It's a bit like you know, statins produce diabetes in 2% of people per year, but they don't. Two percent, two percent of people cross the threshold mm. from not being diabetic to being diabetic based on arbitrary number. Everybody has impaired glucose tolerance if they're going to mess up the coenzyme Q levels in the electron transport chain. So uh, the I can see exactly why um, people want to all feed. I can see exactly why the food industry is going to fight tooth and nail uh, against it. Um, I. Back when I was a clinician, because I'm not really a clinician anymore, I don't deal with, um, uh, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm nearly retired. I go in, I do a theatre list uh, Thursday morning, Friday morning, um, I walk out. So I don't talk to clients terribly much. I'm mostly doing routine surgery. Um, and, um, but when I did, uh, I had a standard hypoallergenic diet that I used for managing, particularly managing chronic gut problems. Um, and I just used to put them on mince. If people wanted to cook the mince, they just told them to boil it for 120 seconds, that's what killed the salmonella. Uh, they put on mince, they put on a bone meal supplement, um, and they were given liver once a week. And that, that was it, that was the exclusion diet. And um, I left a number of these dogs um, in Berkshire when I left, and the Berkshire practice kept up with me for the years afterwards, but all the time we were up in Glasgow and back into Norfolk. And I get these emails saying, this dog, it's, it's a German Shepherd dog. It's 14 years old. It's been on meat and bone meal for um, 
seven, eight years, <laughs> what should we do with it? <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> carry on. <basically. laughs> um, and uh, I don't know, there was N equals five or six, something like that. Because, um, but I, the, generally the, the effects, um, particularly listening to people on the internet, um, in the raw feeding groups, the effects are very similar to putting people on a carnivore diet. The, the, there are, it's not a, goal, it's not a placebo, a, a, a panacea. It doesn't sort everything out. Um, but uh, for a number of dogs, they do extremely well on it. Yeah. And have you ever seen it backfire? Uh, maybe, maybe. Um, no, I, I mean, in terms of having had a client come and complain to me, no. I, I, again, uh, as a clinician, um, I've always been very careful. Um, I'm not very good at telling people you must do this i will tell people that i will feed my animals if you wish to go that and on that basis this has happened this has happened and this has happened on that basis if you wish to go and google um i'll send it to tom lonsdale's website he's the original war meaty bones vet um and um on your head be it I had a standard spiel that okay, if you feed raw meaty bones, you'll have if you if you feed raw meaty bones, you will occasionally run into this problem, this problem, this problem. Um, the first is it, they're going to break teeth every now and again. Uh, one of my cats broke one of its teeth on a chicken wing, um, and it has real trouble eating chicken wings now. But that's it's got one missing clamatio at the top here. Um, they'll occasionally get bone impactions, um, and if you get a bone impaction in the rectum. Some poor out-of-hours vet on a Sunday afternoon is going to have to spend two hours digging up concrete poo out of the back of your dog and neither you nor I is going to be popular when it finally <laughs> comes back to an occasion to get bones stuck in their esophagus. Uh, it's very rarely a problem with, uh, uh, with um, whole carcass feeding, but if you ever have it happen, then that is a life-threatening, extremely expensive emergency to get sorted out. So those are the problems. And you don't tell people, just do this, this will be fine. You say, mm. you have a decision to make. This is the problem, this is the problem, this is the problem. If you don't, if you don't risk those problems and you stay with where you are now, well, the problems are here and they're endless. Um, but there is no free lunch. There is no, this is problem free, it sorts everything out. Um, on balance, I'm much more in favour of raw feeding, but it has to be the right client. It has to be the right rock mindset, and people have to be aware that nothing is problem-free ever. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd heard about another one. Um, there's a guy called Dogtor with the G. Dogtor. I've heard some of this stuff a long time ago. Yeah. He um he talks about how you don't see many Irish setters now because on the whole dry dog food went from corn based to wheat based sometime in the eighties or nineties and that they have a particular susceptibility to, to wheat. My, my wife um, was uh, studied, my, uh, the Ed Hall um, is in a different hall. Uh, Ed Hall uh, was internal medicine at Bristol and he, um, was instrumental in determining that Irish setters had full-blown genetically confirmable celiac disease. The only wow. species breed that it's been done for, but uh, um, they they are the um, they are the poster dog for uh, celiac disease, and uh, 
My wife, in fact, played Ed Hall in the final year review. Um, and uh, he, he had metabolic syndrome. I don't know whether he still has, but she had to have a, a cushion under a big white shirt so that she had a big sticky out tummy. <laughs> but he was a really nice chap. He still is a really nice chap, I hope. Um, but, but no, he, he worked out the genetics for his setters. Virtually all of the other, and that's single gene, and the minutest amount of gluten in the diet will trigger horrendous gut rot with them, uh, and it's real. Um, and people will go from marketed, absolute hypoallergenic diets in a bag through to, well, this one we got from the internet for half the price, and it's got the same ingredients in it, but it's going to have trace gluten in it, and the dogs mm. will just function just falls to pieces. Uh, I had that happen with uh, Irish setters um, and clients who were a little bit short of a penny um, had to go and find a cheaper alternative and they weren't the sort of clients that you could have talked to raw feeding about and that was in the days before I was really would have been talking about it anyway. Mm. Um, I don't know, CDAC in setters, Ed, um, Ed Hall from, uh, from Bristol University Vet School uh, was the original guy and uh, Taught my wife. I'm far too old. I probably qualified before he did. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, no, no, celiac uh, uh, disease. But I think loads and loads of other dogs either have um, gluten intolerance um, or starch intolerance. In the, in the same way as um, people with IBS, um, if they carry the right um, genetic markers, um, really won't get on with starch at all. Um, and those are people usually with um, northern latitude genetics. Um, so uh, that's HLAB27. Have you heard of that one? No. Uh, oh, um, HLAs are human leukocyte antigens. They're uh, cell surface markers on the white blood cells. Uh, and if you carry the B27 marker, uh, the B27 marker was the first ever human um, white blood cell subtype to be tied to a specific disease. Right. Uh, was back in the 60s, I think, just before I went to uni. Um, and um, the geneticist taught us that basically HAB transcendent people, uh, ankylosing spondylitis, it's the only complete tie together in an autoimmune disease that we've got. Um, and that was Prof. Ebringer at um, what's it? King's College London, um, was an immunologist that picked that one up. Um, so if your white blood cells carry the HLAB27, um, marker they can pick up a certain protein and regard it as foreign yeah mm. and the protein that the, the, the b27 marker happens to pick up is on a an enzyme which the klebsiella bacterium in your gut uses to break down starch it's a debranching enzyme it takes the side branches off of the long starch chains it's called pululinase um it's used in uh, um, uh, making polyols, uh, you know, the poly, polyol sugars, sure. um, but then the bacterium uses it for debranching the side chains of starch molecules. And if your immune system sees the pululinase enzyme, it recognizes the a little triplet of um, uh, amino acids as foreign, and it makes antibodies against them. Um, I presume, particularly if you're also eating something that causes your intestine to be permeable like gluten. Um, yeah. And is, is what triggers the immunity. And when the antibody is made to pululinase, 
it happens to drop onto um, one of the collagen subtypes in your spine that's got a similar peptide in the collagen. So the antibody then labels your spine as being foreign and your immune system looks at your spine as being foreign and attacks it. And this is where ankylosing spondylitis comes from. Uh, and Ebring, that, that was the first ever tie together between B27 on human leukocytes and an autoimmune disease, which is ankylosing spondylitis. Um, uh, apparently it also triggers IBS, so IBS ankylosing spondylitis, and some of, the, some of the people with things like Crohn's and things like that are HLA-B27 positive as well. But it's, it, it was very interesting because he'd actually got the molecular mechanism for how it worked and why it was selective for collagen type 9 or something. There was, there was a collagen type in your brain. He also, um, so some people are starch intolerant. So yeah, I think I am. You know, I, uh, I get, I get um, what I've always, because I've, I've got a string of autoimmune problems behind me and I found that um, starch causes, if not heartburn, then pain from the mouth to the through to the stomach uh, in a way that feels more like a, a sort of, um, if not allergy, then an immune attack or something going on. And yeah. uh, starch doesn't agree with me at all. I've tried it a few times on and off and just doesn't work. And it's actually sugar's better than starch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, if it is, uh, if it, this is why I wonder whether I might get it on with coffee once I change my gut bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't work. Okay, but yes, um, uh, starch is one of the, the big bugbear ones. And the further north you come from, uh, the more likely you are to be B27 positive. It's not only B27, there are other HLA markers that will do the same thing. Do they show um, up on 23andMe, do you know? I have no idea. Because I've had that done, I might go hunting again for these that group. Um, I don't think it would, um, but um, have a look. Um, the, he's also got a, um, there's a nitrogenase that I think it's Proteus uses to break down urea to extract the energy from it. Um, and that has a similar peptide, um, but the antibody that's made to that peptide uh, reacts with your fingers, uh, the collagen in your fingers. So that's uh, looking at rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. Um, and uh, again, he's got protocols, staunch avoidance for enclosing spondylitis. It works perfectly well. And um, He's got various protocols, those things he puts in place to try and avoid the urinary excretion. He gives a low protein diet, uh, urinary excretion of nitrogenous waste as much as you can help to try and minimize the proteus, which is where the trigger factor comes for, for rheumatoid disease, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And it's, um, it's not, I don't, it's, it's not quite as good a story. I think you have proteus in your gut as well as in your urinary tract. And I think when you go paleo, you sort that out. So he's got a whole load of these. Um, the, um, he's got one for MS as well. Um, there's a protein produced by Cinebacter. Um, and again, going low carb is going to get rid of your Cinebacter's as well. So it, it, it's, he's a very interesting guy. Um, uh, and again, I kind of I met him socially once. Um, and uh, I know people, friends. Of, he was a big buddy of John Yudkin. They were right, right. Same, same. He picked up the original... Um, his original interest in food and ankylosing spondylitis was that he got a guy coming in for spinal stabilization surgery for, for his ankylosing spondylitis. And they fasted him overnight before he came in, because that's what they used to do. And uh, he came in in the morning and said, my back's better. <laughs> <laughs> the normal response from a medic to that is, okay, bye, next please. 
uh, and Ibrahim went, oh, that's interesting. That's it. Yeah. It, so the guy hadn't had his potatoes with his dinner and he was fine. Yeah, and he hadn't had um, toast for breakfast. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no. The, yeah, that was... Uh, when, when Ibrahim had arthritis patients who needed to lose weight, he started telling them to follow Yudkin's advice and go low carb. And the people going, I've lost weight, but my arthritis has gone away. Hmm. <laughs> they kind of looked at this and, and went, that's interesting, and followed it on. And uh, his people got their PhDs from it. And he found HLAP27, that was the first one he found. Hmm. No, interesting chat that was. That's an interesting guy. <laughs> I guess um, there's only one question I've got left, and this one came from Tucker as well, although it was something that I was, you know, something similar I was going to ask, is that if you had kind of one recommendation for people who are on the standard American diet, just yeah. change one thing, what would it be? Um, oh, God. I saw that come through as a, somebody put it up as a Twitter choice. Could you get rid of seed oils, sugar, or something else? I can't remember what the Refined other flour, maybe. Uh, something like that, yeah. I, I think that's unanswerable. It's unanswerable. I think we had problems. Again, you see, Tucker is the person that's looked at this more than anybody else. Because I, I looked at this originally as a kind of just as a thought. And I thought, well, people didn't ship margarine up to the Eskimo Inuit in the 1800s. They shipped sugar and they shipped flour because they're very valuable commodities. So I'd have put sugar and flour on a par with each other. But then Tucker's got omega sixes going in from a very early, very early, very early stage. Adulterated lard and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, yes. Um, and again, does that happen in the UK? This is the question. I mean, we don't have cotton oil mm. in the UK. Did we ever adulterate our lard with cotton oil to maximise lard sales in the early 1900s? That, that's. I don't think that's answerable. It's a question. It's, and it, to be honest, if you, if it, the, it brings up another question, uh, and that is that um, if the problem, I mean, if the problem at the electron transport chain from omega-6 fats is that they do not generate enough insulin resistance to stop you getting obese, does it matter if the insulin levels are rock bottom? So if you're on a ketogenic diet, would omega-6 fats still make you obese? And the Inuit would have been on a very high omega-6 diet because there's tons, plenty of it in, in, in uh, marine products. And so they should have become obese, but they never did because they were chronically hypo-insulinemic. That would be my explanation for why that happens. Um, and again, that feeds into whether people on ketogenic diets are going to do well or badly on um, omega-6 fat-based diets. And if you're actively losing weight and you don't have other problems, then you probably get away with it. And there, there are little markers that they might give faster weight loss than saturated fat diets at the cost of um, you replacing all of your adipose tissue with omega-6 fatty acids, which and you obviously on a ketogenic diet you have very rapid um, fatty acid turnover in your adipocytes. So you're probably putting an awful lot of omega-6 fats in there, which may not be good for you down the road, 
but they might actually work perfectly well for weight loss if you're calorically restricted, which you're going to be if you've dropped your engine and others through the floor. So, because uh, you automatically restrict your own calories because you're not hungry. So it, it gets, again, I've been thinking about these things a lot. Um, and you look at the, the control, trying to find what controls the input of, or the throughput of electrons down the electron transport chain, what regulates that when you're on a ketogenic diet, your free fatty acids are 2000 um, micromoles per litre, and there's potentially infinite supply of ATP generation, it's regulated, and it's regulated because the fatty acids inhibit electron transport down the electron transport chain. Where they inhibit, how they inhibit it, is a different matter altogether, and I think the research on that is either been done sideways, accidentally, looking at different, different problems, or simply hasn't been done. Uh, and it's very patchy, and I can't work out exactly where either the um, fatty acid or CoA or the um, fatty acid carnitine moiety fits onto the electron transport chain. It's probably going to be somewhere around complex three, but, but I, I, I can't pin it down and people aren't doing the studies because these are very complicated things to look at. Um, but there is a regulation and uh, basically there's more ATP produced or, or there's more maximum flow available for electrons down the electron transport chain if you're giving, if you're based on omega-6 fats. Um, but I see so many problems long term with them. So we, I, I, I don't think it's possible to pull it out. If you're on the SAD, Southern American diet, without, it's, it's just all so bad. <laughs> it's, it's, I can't pull out which one would be the worst. That's fair um, enough. I think in answering it, you've answered so much. Yeah. So well, I, I, I reckon I could, I could. Uh, talk with you for another couple of hours on all this of, uh, you know, there's other things that I would want to talk about, but maybe you can come on again sometime in the future. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, thanks again. And last thing I guess is beyond the, um, beyond the hyperlipid blog, which is high fat, what, what's it called again? High fat nutrition.blogspot or something. Um. Oh, I don't know. I've always called it hyperlipid. I don't know what it comes up on a search engine. Um, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes anyway. But beyond that, is there anywhere else that you want people to find you? Um, hyperlipid's really the only place. I, don't, I, I have got a Twitter account. Um, I look at Twitter occasionally. Uh, I don't post anything. And I, people keep asking to be friends on Facebook as well. Right. Um, and um, Facebook basically is where I put pictures of my cats or, <laughs> or a decent wave when it's on the beach and I was wishing I was in a kayak and getting out there on it. Um, it's, I don't really post anything nutritional there at all. And I have, a, I have an acquaintance for a, who was a, a, a vet student came through the practice with us who's a very, very major vegan now. And I just occasionally comment on that. Don't forget to keep taking B12 supplements. <laughs> nice girl. I wouldn't want to end up with demyelination problems. <laughs> no, okay. No, Hyperlipids really, I think, my only presence on the internet. Um, and and it, it, it just represents ideas that won't let me go. I think they won't, I can't, I don't have any choice about this at all. This is not something I've planned ever to do. And, and the whole blog is now so big that it, if there's something I know I've blogged about and I look <laughs> back and I can't find it, um, and, and it, it, there's too much on there. Um, but that's just what's happened over the last 15 years or so. Okay. Yeah, well, it's, it's a brilliant resource, and um, I think it's 
it's amazing what you've done and I really appreciate you, you know, your work and, uh, and taking the time today as well. You're very welcome, Ali. It's been nice talking to you. That's great. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. Paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider, where you can get restaurant-quality meals, grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb, outdoor-bred pork, and a selection of paleo and low-carb products delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.